morning, everyone. Uh, this is not anywhere close to how any of us imagined Startup Sunday would be, but wow, it's a gift to be with you all. Can I just say, I'm glad we're not doing a park hangout today uh, with the apocalypse that is looming out there. Um, also, a uh, future note for artisan staff, no one uh, should be asked to preach when their daughter is going to kindergarten the next day for the first time because the emotions are just a little too close to the surface, but we're gonna get through and things are gonna be fine. Um, so speaking of the season we're in, fall is of course a season that brings newness and change for many of us, but this year there are added layers of uncertainty and stress and anxiety and fear. And the list of things that fall under the categories of up in the air or wait and see is just unusually long. Um, I think this is true not only for us as persons and households, but as cities and nations. In a recent interview for the On Being podcast, Angel Kyoto Williams said this, the pandemic created a forced retreat. I've done retreat for many years and there's always this point during retreat where you feel you're not knowing come into view. It's one thing to move around the world and say, oh, I don't know, to have not knowing. It's another thing to just feel it, to come into confrontation with your not knowing. It's a tender place to be in confrontation with that. And it's different entirely to have it be not just individual, but to also feel the reverberations of the collective not knowing. As a country, I would add as a continent, we've never been in anything in this generation that has been experienced so potently as collective. I think one of the things that's slowly dawning on us is that we need to become better friends with not knowing, maybe than we've ever been. Uh, in addition, we all know something about the ongoing struggle to find energy, wisdom, motivation that we need to make the most of a difficult time. And the challenges seem to be new every day. And many of us, we long for connection. We aren't sure how to create it or to sustain it while still being safe. And for some, our sense of vitality just, just feels diminished to varying degrees, whether that's emotional or spiritual or physical. And yet now and then we look around and we witness people who seem to be thriving and we're grateful for them and for them sharing their learnings with us. So during such a fraught, complex, complex moment, what might help us in terms of the pages of scripture? Where in the pages of scripture what, might we encounter some help? Today, we're heading into a new series on the book of 1 John. It's a letter that reminds us for one thing, that although much has changed and is changing, there are realities that haven't changed. Namely, that God is love, that we see this most clearly in Jesus, and that in Christ, we become God's love. Now, it's admittedly some big concepts there. Love, God, not easy to pin these things down, partly because there are so many different conceptions and definitions of each, not to mention considerable cultural confusion. It's hard to know exactly what we mean when we talk about God or love. In an introduction to 1 John, Eugene Peterson writes this, the two most difficult things to get straight in life are love and God. More often than not, the mess people make of their lives can be traced to failure or stupidity or meanness in one or both of these areas. The basic and biblical conviction is that the two subjects are intricately related, 
if we want to deal with God the right way, we have to learn to love the right way. If we want to love the right way, we have to deal with God the right way. God and love can't be separated. And Peterson goes on to say that there always seems to be a measure of resistance to the God of love that Jesus reveals. It was happening among the first recipients of John's letter. And I wonder, where might that resistance be in us, in our habits and practices, in our denomination, in the history of Christianity, along with the atrocities of colonialism, imperialism, and racial injustice? So the short answer to why 1 John right now, I would say, is this, that we're in a moment of awakening to and wrestling and reckoning with some big things. So as we engage these reckonings, we need to keep matters of first importance, realities that haven't changed, close at hand. That God is love, that we see this most clearly in Jesus, and that in Christ, we become God's love. I think we're always in need of realignment with scriptural wisdom on these things, but especially now. And not only do we need to remind ourselves of what hasn't changed, we also need to be reminded of what needs to change within us that would enable us to more fully and faithfully live into these realities. So along with the ongoing challenges of COVID, we're in the midst of some big conversations in the life of our church. So in light of that, here's one question I'm going to be holding that I invite you to hold with me as we journey through 1 John. How might we drop anchor as deeply as possible in love as we get closer to an LGBTQ milestone statement? How might we drop anchor as deeply as possible in love, in the God who is love, as we move closer to an LGBTQ milestone statement? Now, of course, there are other questions as well. I look forward to discovering these together with you as we get going. Uh, so are we ready? Uh, Alexia read the text for us once already. It's so nice and short, so I'm gonna read it one more time and then we'll dive in together. 1 John 1, verses 1 to 4. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We have seen it and testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. This is God's word. I'm fascinated uh, by the way the book opens. It's not like other letters in scripture. When you compare uh, Paul's little letters, for example, they usually contain specific things, like who's writing the letter who it's being written to, and some form of greeting, like grace and peace to you from God our Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. It's none of that here. It just launches straight in. Chapter 1, verse 1 in comparison, almost reads like a movie trailer. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we have seen with our eyes. Um, a trailer or preview, of course, being a thing designed to make us want to see more. I'm unsure whether my imitation of a trailer had the same effect. But anyway, that's the feeling when I open up 1 John. I, it's immersive, it's tactile. Whatever the writer has borne witness to has been encountered, not just in people's heads, but by human bodies with all the physical senses. 
whatever's being announced here, it has been beheld. And those who beheld it can't wait to tell us more. And I, for one, want to hear more. A brief word about context. It's impossible to know for sure who wrote this letter. But early church tradition attributes the writing of 1 John as well as 2nd and 3rd John to the Apostle John, son of Zebedee. Since there are both similarities and differences in themes and in styles of writing between the letters and the Gospel of John, there's debate about whether the same person wrote both. But many scholars believe there's enough similarity to take the view that John, the one who was called the beloved disciple, was the source for them all. As for time and location, the letters were most likely written before the end of the first century in Asia Minor. That's a region in the southwestern part of Asia that makes up most of present-day Turkey. What about the occasion? Again, hard to be certain, but what seems to be going on is that a small community of believers is experiencing conflict and confusion about what's most important. And John is writing to help them sort it out by taking them back to the solid foundations of the faith. And so the reason for the opening words becomes clear. He's drawing their attention to that which was from the beginning. There's a sense of urgency here that reverberates in a beautiful little poem by Della Hicks Wilson. Honey, beware. There may be storms coming that shake your branches until you don't have a leaf left, but never, I mean never, let them pull you from the roots. John's beginning by telling his readers this is a time to remain deeply rooted. In what? Or whom? Well, the word of life, the life that appeared, the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us, the first one, the incarnate one, Life, infinite and full and always, Jesus the Christ, God in a human body, who has been experienced in our bodies, eyes, ears, hands, a multi-sensory encounter which bubbles forth into proclamation. Why is this physicality so important to John? Well, uh, when I ask that question, I know what you're thinking. Can we hear some Dostoevsky as we sit with a question? I've been reading the Brothers Karamazov for a few weeks now, and I'm kind of into it. So listen to this. Love all of God's creation, both the whole of it and every grain of sand. Love every leaf, every ray of God's light. Love animals, love plants, love each thing. If you love each thing, you will perceive the mystery of God in things. Once you have perceived it, you will begin tirelessly to perceive more and more of it every day. And you will come at last to love the whole world with an entire universal love. I think what Dostoevsky is saying is that we learn to love the universal by loving the particular. That, that we grow in affection for the immaterial by loving that which is material and tactile. Now, this is a drumbeat we hear often in John's first letter. Why? Because there were some among his hearers who wanted to deny the physical realm altogether, and along with it, the notion of an incarnate God. But here's the thing. A disembodied Christianity is not Christianity at all. 
There is something, and this is something, the whole of scripture declares univocally and something we need to be continually reminded of, particularly in a time when it's especially difficult to remain embodied. Disembodied theology leads to disembodied thinking, which leads to disembodied practice. So faith centered on the word of life can't just sit in our heads and our studies and in our discussion groups. It's got to become tangible. One of my favorite quotes from the summer is by Cornell West, who said, justice is what love looks like in public. Justice is what love looks like in public. I just love that. And I also love what Rich Villadas said in a tweet not too long ago. He said, for far too many, justice is seen as an optional supplement to evangelism and mission. But we need to seriously consider justice as one of the means of evangelism. Many in this generation could care less about our good news if it's not good news leading to a more just world. I'm so grateful that uh, so many of you participated in the anti-racism reading groups this summer. I love hearing about some of the learning that's been going on and I've been reading and learning along with you. And I'm even more grateful to hear that these groups concluded with the question of what comes next. And so this is a question we're going to be holding as a community as we as we keep asking it as we keep responding to it. May we continue to creatively and lovingly spur one another on to concrete action, even as we continue growing in awareness in other ways. Why? Because our faith is not primarily a belief system, but a practice. It's a way of being centered on Jesus who didn't say to those first disciples, come, think about me or discuss me or even write about me. He said, follow me. Christian faith is something you do with your whole self. The life that appeared is meant to be enfleshed in and through us. So, Physicality, the life of the senses, embodiment, extremely important themes to John. But what he's really on about as he says this and what he's most compelled to proclaim or announce is the person of Jesus. Why? Because some of his readers are thinking it's possible to have life and fellowship with God without Jesus. And John says no. He will have much more to say about this as we go, but we'll leave it there for now. And now in the few minutes that remain, I want to talk briefly about three key words arising from our text. So just really many word studies. First, the word eternal. Verse two, we've seen it, we testify to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life. Now what I want to do is hopefully clear the air a bit on a word that for many of us has come to mean something I don't believe the New Testament writers intended. The ancient Jews believed that world history was divided into two periods or ages. There was the present age, which was full of suffering, injustice, and oppression, and there was the age to come, a time when God would sort it all out, would set everything right, and would rescue his people from the evil they had suffered. So sadly, the word for age has often been translated as eternal or eternity which gives modern readers the idea that John and other New Testament writers who refer to God's coming age were thinking of something eternal in the sense of something purely spiritual, something that had nothing to do with the world of space and time and physical matter. That's what people often hear when they read the phrase eternal life, which is what most translations have at verse two, but it's mistaken. 
What John has in mind here, along with Paul and Jesus himself, is the age to come, which God had not only promised, but had already arrived. N.T. Wright puts it this way. The future had burst into the present, even though the present time wasn't ready for it. The word for that future was life, life as it was meant to be. Life in its full, vibrant meaning, a life which death tried to corrupt, thwart, and kill, but a life which had overcome death itself and was now on offer to anyone who wanted to come and take it. Life itself had come to life, had taken the form of a human being coming into the present from God's future, coming to display God's coming age. And the name of that life in person is, of course, Jesus. That is the very heart of what John wants to say. So eternal life, according to the New Testament, is not about going to heaven when you die. Eternal life understood biblically is this. God's future that has burst into the present in the form of a person. God's own son, Jesus. Second word, fellowship. Verse three again reads this way. The life appeared. Oh, sorry. Verse three. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the father and with his son, Jesus Christ. So fellowship is the goal. We write these things so that fellowship. What is it? Well, let's begin with what it isn't. I'll put it this way. Fellowship can't be reduced to church juice and cookies in the basement after the Sunday gathering. Now that phrase might need translation for those who didn't grow up in a churchy subculture. Um, so let me unpack it. In many church buildings, often in the basement, was a large open room usually called the fellowship hall. It's where you went after the service, often to have church juice and cookies and just chat with people. Now church juice, more often than not, consisted of 0% real fruit juice. It sometimes took the form of a thing called orange drink that McDonald's used to sell. And you could rent these giant coolers. They look like this uh, for, for your fellowship hall hangouts. Um, anyone familiar with these? <laughs> so I don't know if anyone else has had this experience, but people who prepared church juice never got the mix to water ratio right. Never. It was either way too sweet, or as was most often the case, way too watered down because budget. Almost never bang on, and it's still a bit of a sore spot, as you can tell from me. <laughs> so uh, fellowship in scripture, by comparison, is a much richer word. The original Greek is koinonia, and it literally means having in common. So here's the sense of what John is saying that what we've witnessed and come to know in Christ results in koinonia, in fellowship, and we want y'all to have it as well. Communion with the Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, a mutual commitment to a common purpose, an experience marked by participation and union. And you know what? Here's the irony. Sometimes these things happen over church juice in the basement. Sometimes in fellowship halls, fellowship actually happens. How many of us right now are longing for that regular touch point on Sundays at Japanese Hall? That chance to sip 
not on orange drink, but prototype coffee and simply catch up. To hear the stories of joy and celebration, anticipation, as well as the stories of confusion and hard times and grief. To pray, to bear one another's burdens. There are a lot of burdens right now. To help each other notice how and where God might be present and active. Fellowship is the goal. But there's another one as well, and that's the last word. Word is joy. Verse 4. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, if you have a Bible open, you might see a footnote that says, some manuscripts, your, instead of our. Is it our joy? Is it your joy? If it's only ours, when we might read that, it might seem a bit selfish. But everything in the context points toward John speaking inclusively. He wants the message to be proclaimed to his readers. He wants the fellowship to be shared. It stands to reason he also wants the joy to be a mutual blessing. So I like how Eugene, Eugene Peterson translates verse 4. He says it this way. Our motive for writing is simply this. We want you to enjoy this too. and Your, do your joy will double our joy. So it, it helps me to imagine John writing as a pastor as one whose heart can't be totally at peace, as long as there are some in his congregation who aren't experiencing the fullness of life in Jesus as it's meant to be. So, as we come to the Lord's table this morning, may we know the joy of the life of Jesus in our midst. May we experience communion in the spirit and with each other. May our eyes our ears, our hands, and our hearts be open to the God who is love, to know our belovedness in the core of our being. And may we, even in the strangest of times, find courage and grace from our fellowship with the triune God to embody the living faith we've received.